from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But find out do me a favor, favor. Let me in here Then we can find the rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of light I got four things to talk about before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's cast. Uh, number one, I am sunburnt. Uh, it's not too bad. It's just in a few spots, like on my neck. I rode all over Lake Monona yesterday, taking pictures of my favorite places in Madison, including a whole bunch of park benches. And hopefully by the time people hear this, I will have a post up on the blog about how I consider the bench, especially like park benches, to be the perfect synthesis of human-made materials and natural beauty because when you put up a bench facing a lake or, you know, a garden or something, you're basically telling other people, hey, there's some natural beauty here that you should appreciate, so take a minute and appreciate that beauty, damn it. Uh, so those pictures are on my website, fbesp.org slash synapse. Um, check them out because I got, I got the sunburn in order to get those pictures, so people better recognize... Um, I had a philosophical insight recently. It's not really an insight. Uh, I've thought this for a long time, and I've come to understand this is a very important point, I think, and it's one that I struggle with myself, and I think it's something that other people need to recognize as well. And it has to do with the Bertrand Russell quote we had a little while ago, and it is this. One of the great ethical mistakes that we human beings make, and so many of us do this over and over and over, is allowing our ideology to trump our intelligence. Whereas, in most instances, you can see that intelligence should lead a person to a certain conclusion or to accept one piece of information or evidence, a lot of times people will dismiss that information, people will close their minds to that uh, perspective because their ideology tells them, no, 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 you can't accept that. And I think this is where a lot of people have this attitude of, you don't ever want to give in to the other side because this notion of winner-take-all politics that we see so prominently here in the U.S., but I'm sure it takes place elsewhere too, uh, says that you never give an inch to your the other side in anything. It's all a debate and someone's going to win and you're supposed to be winning and that's what it's about. But you know what? Intelligence is supposed to allow us to rise above that, yeah? Wisdom is supposed to allow us to rise above that. That's what enlightenment is, is allowing us to rise above mere ideology. Now, I understand that ideology is important and I have certain parts of my ideology that are very important to me, but I don't recognize that my ideology reign supreme over everything. No ideology can ever do that. Your worldview should be able to encompass things that don't quite fit into your ideological perspective. And you have to be able to say, like, here's why this other person sees things differently from me. And I think a lot of us don't allow that. We, we, we allow our ideology to be supreme in our minds, and we don't accept or acknowledge anything that doesn't fit into our ideology. So I think it's the wise person who can say, yeah, I accept that point, or yeah, you may be right about that, e even though we might then back up a minute and say, yeah, okay, that's a fair point, but I'm still, I still believe that, you know, this way I see things is, is mostly the way it is, or whatever. Anyway, uh, moving on, two more things real quick. Um, a couple of corrections and updates. I should make this a regular part of the show because I'm sometimes wrong about things, hard as it may be for you to believe them. I actually should bring the Duchess on, but she's off at the farm picking peas and stuff. Um, the Kindness of America hitchhiker. Remember I told you about the dude who was hitchhiking and he got he stopped to get a ride from someone and the dude pulled out a gun and shot him. Actually, guess what? It's a hoax. Dude shot himself. Can you believe that? What a pathetic loser. I think at any point, if you're shooting yourself, that's just a sad sign that something's gone horribly wrong with your life, man. That's like that woman who like she pretended she got attacked and she like carved a, a bee into her face or something and she was like, oh, some black guy attacked me and carved a bee into my face for Obama or something. And it, then it turns out, oh, she did it herself. Like It's so pathetic. 
and you know, as Paul Mooney has said, is blame a black guy. That's the way it is, because uh, that's what America's just willing to believe right away. I'm surprised this hitchhiker dude didn't go. Ah, some black guy shot me. Um, anyway, uh, also the I put this on the show notes last week, but I wanted to make it clear on the podcast in case people don't have time to get over to my website. What's wrong with you? Get over to my website. There's photographs now. I can't tell you. I could describe the photographs one by one. Stop with this tangents, Piotrowski. We got to get through this quickly. This is not going to be a damn 90-minute show this week. <laughs> anyway, uh, the little girl who was doing the blog in Scotland, her band was lifted. Yay! So she's back to taking pictures of the food at school and going, ooh. Or I guess she, ah, what is this haggis? It's disgusting. Um, and finally, on a very sad note, Alan Saunders died. Uh, he was a guy who uh, he hosted uh, the ABC Radio National um, Philosopher's Zone podcast, and it's a great show. I hope they continue it somehow with some uh, other host who will have some very big shoes to fill. I don't envy the person who has to try to take Mr. Saunders's place, but it's it's a good show, and I think they could probably continue it in some decent way. Uh, I wrote a little piece on my blog about Alan Saunders because uh, unlike a lot of people, like I remember when uh, Peter Jennings died uh, not so long ago, and um, who's the other dude from 60 Minutes, the... You ever notice that Andy Rooney, uh, when they died, I, I wasn't, I mean, you know, it's sad, I think, when any human being dies, but I, I didn't feel any real connection to them. But with Alan Saunders, I totally did. So here's what I wrote on my blog. Mr. Saunders did an amazing job with the show, making deep philosophical concepts available to ordinary people in language that was comprehensible, but never simplistic. He spoke in a rich baritone, his, hello, I'm Alan Saunders. You've got to go to listen to some of the old shows because his voice is just riveting by itself. He might, he could be talking about, he could be reading out of the phone book, and I'd be like, "Ooh, go on, Mr. Saunders." And today I'm going to read from the S's in the Australian Darwin area telephone directory. Um, yeah, so he spoke in a rich baritone about philosophical figures and movements, interrupting his guests only when necessary to provide context and background. He ne- he asked intriguing follow-up questions and dropped little pieces of humor where appropriate, but he left out the inane puns so common to so-called intellectual broadcasting in the U.S. I'm looking at you, NPR! Stop it! And get some microphones that don't record every single swish of the saliva in your guests' mouths. I can't stand that when I'm listening to NPR and... and it, is that, are you standing next to a wave pool? Or what is that? Perhaps my favorite thing about Alan Saunders is how committed he was to exploring the vast diversity of ways in which philosophy exists in our world and all the different people, uh, all the ways that different people set out to explore its core questions. Most guests were academics, but he also brought on primary school teachers, government workers, and folks from other walks of life. He did shows about Islamic philosophy, philosophical currents in sub-Saharan Africa, and various forms of Asian philosophy, all of which, fascinating and rich though they are, usually get short shrift in popular philosophy media. The news of Mr. Saunders' passing saddens me, in part because it was so sudden, and in part because I feel like I got to know him. After all, I spent a half an hour with him in deep conversation every week. I suppose it's fair to say that I thought of him as a teacher, helping me as he did to understand and interrogate the world around me. So thank you for your work, Mr. Saunders. You will be missed. And now let's talk about what's going on in the world. McCain's a very interesting person. I don't know how to feel about John McCain ever. He's he's a perfect example, kind of like Ron Paul. Like I can't hate Ron Paul, but I can't love him either. Like there are some people I look at and I'm just like, okay, that person is on balance not a good person, or this person is generally a decent person. Um, I mean, I, I think McCain and Ron Paul are, are fundamentally decent people, but I think in the case of Ron Paul, he pursues some st- policies that are just stupid. Um, and John McCain. You know, it's like one of these things. I saw a cartoon when Richard Nixon died, and it was all this stuff about, like, it was St. Peter. Uh, he got, like, a God was looking at St. Peter and, and holding two files for Richard Nixon and saying, this is going to take a while. And, like, he's he's going through, you know, opening up China and you know certain things that Nixon did that were good. And on the other hand, it was, like, Watergate and, you know, Vietnam and stuff uh, that he said were bad. So, anyway, that's kind of how I feel about John McCain. If you don't know, John McCain, who is a U.S. senator, and has been for a long time from Arizona. 
Um, he was wounded in Vietnam, and his plane got shot down, I think it was, and he was taken prisoner, and he was tortured by the Viet Cong. And at one point, um, it got out that his father was somebody important in the world of politics, and so the Viet Cong said, uh, no, excuse me, I don't think it was the Viet Cong, I think it was the North Vietnamese Army. I don't remember which group, it's probably the North Vietnamese. Anyway, he was being held by the communists in Vietnam, let me put it that way. Um, and... At one point, they found out who his, that his dad was really important, and this could be a big PR thing for the Vietnamese. And so they said, we'll release you. And, and John McCain said, no, not unless my men back there in prison can also come with me. And they said, no deal. He said, put me back in my cell and put another lock on it, which I think is amazing. That's solidarity right there, yeah? And as much as I disagree with John McCain's generally right-wing Republican conservative agenda, I have a tremendous respect for the solidarity that he showed his men, his comrades in arms, in that moment. And and as a result of that torture, you know, he's been physically disfigured for life, and that's why he can't lift his arms up higher than, like, you know, his head. And so when he's out in, uh, you know, campaigning, when he was campaigning for president, you know, a lot of camp presidents would, like, wave with their hand high up, but he couldn't do that. So uh, I, I have a lot of respect for the fact that he was willing to undergo that torture in the name of solidarity. Uh, now, I wish he could recognize that other people deserve that same kind of solidarity and shared sacrifice and whatever, but there's that. Then he, you know, fast forward a lot of years, he's the one who brought us Sarah Palin. Without John McCain picking Sarah Palin for his vice president candidate, we would not even know who Sarah Palin is today. She would not be the superstar of the Tea Party movement. It's probably fair to say the Tea Party would be a lot less powerful today if it weren't for Sarah Palin. And so I, I'm mad at John McCain for that. But he has also been, and this is why I'm mentioning him now, uh, a... Uh, an, an ardent and enthusiastic advocate for campaign finance reform. He worked with Russ Feingold, the amazing, wonderful, on balance, magnificent. There's only I can't remember and many things that Feingold has done or not done that I'm angry about. Um, so anyway, Feingold worked with McCain on this campaign finance bill back in the day, and it's called the McCain-Feingold Act, and it did a good job of sort of trying to strike down uh, certain forms of uh, corruption funding that go on in Washington, D.C. And now with the Citizens United decision, Tavis Smiley said, I think it was Tavis Smiley, somebody asked Russ Feingold, isn't, isn't, hasn't that decision sort of rendered McCain-Feingold moot? And Feingold said, no, McCain-Feingold is the only thing really holding back any limits on how corporations and, and you know other big groups uh, influence U.S. politics. So anyway, the reason I'm mentioning it is because there's a new article that came out this week uh, from Think Progress that said, uh, McCain criticizes Romney's super PAC and insists that corporations are not people. Now, w again, with this winner-take-all approach I was talking about before the, you know, in the first section, um, you're never supposed to criticize your own side. And so, so, you know, when, for instance, Tavis Smiley and Cornell West talk about things Obama hasn't done well or, you know, whatever, uh, drone attacks and, you know, the unlimited drug war, the new Jim Crow, whatever, uh, people say, oh, you shouldn't be attacking Obama, you're just a traitor, and this and that. Anyway, McCain gets some of that same flack. Now, Sarah Palin likes to pretend like she's going rogue and she'll take on the Republican establishment, but it's not, in any, it's just, it's, 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 it's fluff. It's, it's surface level going rogue. It's surface level dissension. John McCain has some real criticisms of the super PAC fanaticism with which a lot of Republicans and Democrats, let's be honest, uh, support the Citizens United decision. Here's what McCain said, quote, uh, we need to go back to the realization that Teddy Roosevelt had that we have to have a limit on the flow of money and that corporations are not people. That's why we have different laws that govern corporations than govern individual citizens. And so to say that corporations are people, again, flies in the face of all the traditional Supreme Court decisions that we have made, that have been made in the past. Now, I would say that as the film, the documentary film, The Corporation, shows, uh, corporations jumped on the 14th Amendment right away and said, oh, we're people and we deserve protections that were supposed to be given to slaves, but corporations wanted them and blah. Blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if I would agree with every decision the Supreme Court made had to do with corporations not being people, but I certainly agree with his assessment that corporations are not people and that we need to have restrictions on them. And uh, as the saying goes, I'll believe that corporations are people when Texas puts one to death in the electric chair. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was this story about, it was very sad, uh, this woman had a plant garden in, in, her, in, her, in, in her house, not in her house, but in front of her house, I think, um, 
Yeah, so, and, and the cops came and chopped them all down. Denise Morrison said she had more than 100 plant varieties in her front and backyards, and all of them are edible and have a purpose. She knows which ones will treat arthritis, which ones will make your food spicy, which ones keep mosquitoes away and treat bug bites, but she said none of that mattered to city inspectors. Morrison said she had a problem at her last property with code enforcement, so this time she read the ordinance, which says plants can't be over 12 inches tall unless they're used for human consumption. She made sure everything she grew could be eaten, which she told the inspectors. Every word out of their mouths was, we don't care, Morrison said. So that's just very sad. And some people have pointed out that it may be something to do with the fact that she's a black woman and the uh, police uh, are more dismissive of her than they would be if she were a white woman. I don't know about that, but um, it's possible. Uh, the new Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, I'm reading that. And let me tell you something. I don't know if I've implored you on this podcast but you have got to read this book uh it's just unbelievable she's got so much amazing information and in fact i want to put this on the website but i'm not going to read it now i learned something very interesting today um because she talks about how uh basically the thesis of the book is okay drug rates and drug sales levels among blacks and whites tend to be roughly equal however the drug war uh, almost entirely goes after African Americans and uh, Latino individuals uh, for prosecution of drug crimes. Um, and so there's this new level of disenfranchisement. And of course, once you're branded a felon in the United States, that's pretty much goodbye to the ability to vote. A very difficult time getting a job. Um, finding housing is more difficult when you have a felony record, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and then there's these three strikes you're out laws. There's these man, minimum mandatories for, especially for crack sale. Um, all sorts of things that show that it's, it's, it's not a do your time, pay your debt to society, and then that's it. It's this lifetime of second-class status. And so that's why she calls it the new Jim Crow. Anyway, she's talking in the final section about how we're going to have some sort of movement for change to end this system of institutionalized oppression and second-class citizenship. And it's, it's going to be very difficult, she says, if, um, if we were to uh, get incarceration rates down to where they were in the 1970s, four out of every five individuals in prison right now would have to be let out. And as she points out, that's going to be a big, that's going to be resisted by prison unions and privatized prison industries and lots of other uh, powerful groups of people in this country. Anyway, so that's one of the reasons she says why civil rights groups are going to be reluctant to take on this new Jim Crow system, the way the drug force, the drug war is being fought, um, because they might not want to champion people who have been convicted of drug crimes because they don't tend to be very sympathetic in, in the popular eye. And then she talks about this. Um, a prime example of this problem is the Rosa Parks story. Uh, Rosa Parks was not the first person to refuse to give up her seat on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Civil rights advocates considered and rejected two other black women as plaintiffs when planning a test case challenging segregation practices, Claudette Colvin and Mary Louise Smith. Both of them were arrested for refusing to give up their seats on Montgomery's segregated buses just months before Rosa Parks refused to budge. Colvin was 15 years old when she defied segregation laws. Her case attracted national attention, but civil rights advocates declined to use her as a plaintiff because she got pregnant by an older man shortly after her arrest. Advocates worried that her immoral quote-unquote conduct would detract from or undermine their efforts to show that blacks were entitled to and worthy of equal treatment. Likewise, they decided not to use Mary Louise Smith as a plaintiff because her father was rumored to be an alcoholic. It was understood that in any effort to challenge racial discrimination, the litigant, and even the litigant's family, had to be above reproach and free from every negative trait that could be used as a justification for unequal treatment. So I just thought that was a fascinating piece of information, and it's true. Like, when we see a news story about a person being beaten by the cops, for instance, if somewhere in that article it says, oh, and the dude was, you know, he had a bag of weed on him, or, you know, he was driving drunk, a lot of times we go, well, you know, I, I, he, he had the stuff on him, he did the crime. But, but of course, that's a separate question about whether the police are justified in beating someone or, or committing acts of brutality or, you know, in some cases, even killing them. Um, so that's why I think, you know, Amadou Diallo, his case raised the, the, the consciousness of people in terms of, of, yeah, you know, police brutality. But someone like Tyron Lewis in St. Petersburg, Florida, people said, oh, well, he had crack on him. And then other people said, well, the cops planted it or whatever. It does. The point is um, that that stigma that people have about criminality is one that's hard to overcome. So anyway, um, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, there was some really good news about the law. Uh, Monsanto lost a $2 billion judgment in a Brazilian court. This is very exciting because Monsanto... Uh, all right. So I try to have an attitude of, 
I don't hate you. I hate everything you do and say. I do believe it's important for us to love the sinner and hate the sin, to have compassion for individuals, as the 17th century Zen master Banke said. The true human ideal is to forgive those who are foolish and help those who are evil. And I believe that. I believe, you know, Emile Zola, the French novelist, said, ought we not forgive others much if we wish to be forgiven ourselves? So it's important for us to be able to condemn what people do and not who they are and all that stuff. And Jay Smooth had the video about how to tell people they sound racist and never mind about who they are. Talk about what they've done. So all of that is to say that I have, I'm trying not to say Monsanto is a purely evil company, but it's a purely evil company. If you saw Michael Clayton, that movie with uh, George Clooney and, and uh, I don't remember who else is in it, but it's a really good, Matilda Swinton, duh. Uh, it's a great movie. Uh, the, the, the company in that movie is basic, Monsanto is basically that company. And I don't remember the name of the fictional company in that movie, but that's what Monsanto is. They, they lie, they manipulate data, they poison farmers, and they, it's crazy. Anyway, um, so there was this great news, because they lost in court, and Monsanto never loses in court. They certainly don't lose in the United States. And again, that documentary film, The Corporation, has a great section in it about how Monsanto went after these two reporters in Florida who were going to reveal some stuff about how the this bovine growth hormone that they were giving to cows was causing the cows to become sick and then the pus was getting in the milk and all sorts of stuff. Um, and Monsanto came down on the owners of the network and they said, they yanked the story. And so they were like, the, the people aren't going to get to know about this because Monsanto said no. And the reporters said, this is the news. We need to tell people about this. And the owner of the station said, we just bought these stations for $30 million. We'll tell you what the news is. The news is what we say it is. So there you go. Think about that next time you're watching the news. Whatever. Um, so here's what's going on in Brazil. Farmers say that they're using... Okay, so there's this thing that Monsanto has called Terminator Seed Technology. And what it does is it basically... Okay, the way farming has always worked forever and ever is you plant the seeds one year, you save some of the seeds, the, the next year's crop germinates, and you save some of those seeds, you save seeds from one year to the next, and... That can keep you, you know, it's the circle of life. It's circle of life. Thank you, Ross Noble. Uh, it, it's, it keeps it going, and, and you have seeds every year, right? But while Monsanto says, uh-uh, bull crap, we're going to make farmers buy the seeds from us every year. And so what they try to do is they have this Terminator seed technology, which the seeds are good for one year, basically. They have an expiration date, and then they stop working. Well, that's just sick, as Vandana Shiva says. Uh, any that that takes a homicidal mind to come up with that notion of trying to stop the way nature works. Um. Anyway, um. So farmers say they're using seeds produced many generations after the initial crops from the genetically modified Monsanto seeds were grown. Farmers claim that Monsanto unfairly collects exorbitant profits every year worldwide on royalties from so-called renewal seed harvests. Renewal crops are those that have been planted using seed from the previous year's harvest. Monsanto disagrees, demanding royalties from any crop generation produced from its genetically engineered seed. Because the engineered seed is patented, Monsanto not only charges an initial royalty on the sale of the crop produced, but a continuing 2% royalty on every subsequent crop, even if the farmer is using a later generation of seed. And so this is where we come down to the end quote from the article. This is where we're coming down to this notion of like Monsanto owning the stuff of life and patenting life forms and the Roundup Ready thing. Uh, it's all very crazy. And, and Monsanto has so much power. They, they have so many lobbyists. And this is why, I, you know, I obviously nothing against farmers. I think farmers are great. You know, God bless them. They're the reason we have all the food that we have. And I think it's wonderful that, you know, the Duchess goes off and works on a farm. And, and I, I wish that my palate were more um, accepting of, you know, organic foods and fresh vegetables and stuff. I'm like, whatever, give me a veggie burger. Uh, but but this the thing I think that most sucks about the world of agriculture is that Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and a few other companies have such an incredible stranglehold on the whole system. And they get so crazy paid while family farms are in more and more trouble all the time and all because the system is rigged to benefit these corporations like Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and stuff and meanwhile most of us are just like whatever I'm going to the grocery store to get my food and and, and it's and when companies that grow like organic food or you know uh, fair trade produce or, or foods of any kind want to label their stuff as organic Monsanto often spearheads lobbying efforts to say no you can't label it organic because then it'll make Monsanto stuff that's made with Monsanto's genetically modified or whatever it is it'll make them look bad and 
so that we can't even have like a truth in packaging law because Monsanto is so worried that people will, I think, justifiably be worried that, you know, oh, we don't want to buy stuff that's made with Frankenfoods or whatever it is. Um, so they're just there. See, and again, it's another example of how Monsanto is actually scared of an actual free market. And, and they're, they're per- petrified to go up against even little mom and pop farms because they know they'll lose. Because the only reason Monsanto can create profit is by economies of scale and imposing their vision of the market share on the rest of the market. Blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about some cash money. Uh, Tavis Smiley had a talk with Joseph Stiglitz recently, and man, that's an interesting talk. You should totally check it out. I'm going to make that a top three uh, thing this week because Joseph Stiglitz is a fascinating individual. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2001. He is the former senior vice president and chief economist of the World Bank, a fascinating individual. He spent his whole life in economic analysis, and he knows whereof he speaks. So when he goes on to Tavis Smiley and breaks things down in very clear, simple language, you he's not... Uh, spouting some leftist theory that come up in a coffee shop at 2 a.m. He's he's reporting from the front lines of the global economy, and uh, he knows how screwed up things are. Same thing about Hao Chang. He's not just studying this in some ivory tower, and he's not just theorizing about it in some abstract way. He's been to the places that the world economy is affecting most harshly, and he's making it clear what the problems are in a way that is intelligent and comprehensible, and he just does such a good job. When I saw it appear on my podcast feed, I was like, oh man, only 15 minutes? Come on, Tavis Smiley. Because Tavis Smiley will give like 20 minutes to singers and actors and stuff, and sometimes a half an hour or longer. And I'm like, Joseph Stiglitz deserved longer, man. Give him a longer segment. But even in that 15 minutes, Stiglitz just, I mean, he destroys all the mythologies and he just explains things so clearly. So please, please, please go and look at the interview with Joseph Stiglitz that Tavis Smiley did. It's really awesome. Uh, much less awesome is the uh, Indonesian tax collectors that are going to be undergoing disciplinary training by the military. I'm not making this up. It's really weird. Uh, the article says, and this is from Economy Watch. Tax collectors in Indonesia will soon be trading their office wear for military fatigues, reported the Financial Times on Thursday, after the finance ministry announced plans to send 32,000 of its tax officers for two to three weeks of physical training with the military in order to boost morale and promote professionalism. Uh, End quote. Pulling out of the article for a second. At first, I was like, well, you know what? I don't know. First of all, you need to understand, I don't have a lot of love for the Indonesian military. They occupied East Timor for 25 years, and it was a hideous occupation. At least a third, uh, between a fifth and a third of the population were wiped out. 150,000 people killed. Uh, just a horrible, brutal. Lots of torture went on. Rape was used as a political weapon. Yada yada yada. The 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 track record of the Indonesian military is hideous and bloodstained and gruesome and wrong. Like almost every military on the planet. Um, it so. I, I'm very, I'm very nervous about any notion of anybody working with the Indonesian military, especially tax collectors in Indonesia. On the other hand, I've heard from people who have been in Indonesia that and have studied the government of Indonesia for a long time that corruption is insane there, and that we have government officials who like quite literally just walk out of their offices with suitcases full of money, and that's part of the reason why so many people in Indonesia have a hard time you know, making it and, and establishing a decent standard of living, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't really think that was an initial thing. Like, Oh, maybe this will help. Wait a minute. What am I talking about? No, it probably won't do any good at all. Returning to the article now, one senior government official, however, dismissed the boot camp plan as a gimmick, quote unquote, arguing that tax officers did not need military style training to become more professional. Uh, Danang Widoiko Widoyoko, I'm probably saying it wrong. Uh, the coordinator of the Indonesian Corruption Watch, a local NGO, also shared this view. Quote, the so-called disciplinary training at the tax office won't be effective in increasing its integrity because the corruption there is systematic, he said, which is a very good point. Um, according to Transparency International, Indonesia is currently the 100th most corrupt country in the world. Widoyoko noted that if the government was serious about fighting corruption in the tax office, it should conduct more wealth verification checks on senior officials. And I don't really know exactly what that means, but I really like that notion, and I think we should do that in the United States too, because there are probably a bunch of senators and Congress representatives who would not pass a wealth verification check on senior officials. Uh, one last thing in the economic section this week, a uh, very interesting piece in Economy Watch about 
piracy and, and intellectual property in general and about media and music and movies and everything. And the headline was, is it worth keeping the pirates at bay? See what they did there? Because there's a, a torrent site called the Pirate Bay. That's just clever. That's it. Um, and here's the, so the thing is, okay, the, the industry, the entertainment industries in general, Recording Industry Association of America, RIAA, the, American Motion, the Motion Picture Association of America, MPAA, and a number of other trade groups say that the patents and, and copyright need to be very stringently enforced. We have to go after online piracy sites uh, and sometimes even individual users. Like there was that one girl who got busted for file sharing on Napster back in the day, and that's actually one of the reasons why Napster shut down. Um, they say we had to go as regrettable as it is to be suing nine-year-old girls or however old she was. Uh, we have to do that because that's the only way we can stop this piracy from going on because we have to protect the intellectual property of artists. And, okay, I can respect the fact that if a band or a filmmaker puts in a lot of work on something, and video games is true as well, uh, then they deserve compensation for their work. And to have people steal it totally sucks. However... The, it, as this article will argue, it's it's kind of an antiquated vision of, I mean, the, the notion of scarcity is very important, and we'll get to scarcity in just a minute. What this article does is sort of argues for a different way of approaching the question of how we pay for entertainment and how artists and filmmakers and game manufacturers uh, get compensated for their work. Okay, so here's the article. According to studio representatives, intellectual property infringement committed via the internet costs the U.S. economy nearly $250 billion and 750,000 jobs every year. A closer look at these figures, though, reveals their murky origins. It turns out that the $250 billion number is a 1990s estimate of the size of the global market in counterfeit goods, which is a different, different thing altogether. As for the 750,000 jobs figure, this appears to have originated from a 1986 speech by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, who guesstimated that counterfeiting could cost the U.S. anywhere from 130,000 to 750,000 jobs. So that's a pretty wide range, and for the industry to now take the high end of that guesstimation and use that as the basis for this is why we have to go after this, uh, as if it were some certainty and fact, that's not fair. Uh, so that was my commentary. Returning to the article, according to Dr. Joss Wright, a researcher at the Oxford Internet faculty, the media industry's scaremongering tactics were intended to protect a massive money-spinning operation, which was, quote, crumbling under them as the fundamental technologies have changed. Dr. Wright added that the movie and music studios should accept the fact that we are now living in a post-scarcity period. So this is Dr. Wright talking now. The thing that assigns value is scarcity. That's why we willingly paid 15 pounds for a CD 20 years ago, but we know no longer need these objects and we are seeing an extremely tortuous extension and twisting of copyright as the industry tries to maintain the old business model. Dr. Wright believes that the media industry should find new ways to make money rather than maintaining their glassy-eyed denial of the changing landscapes. Now, to interrupt here again, I, I actually have some sympathy for the industry because, okay, yeah, landscape's changing and I recognize that and I, I, I want to see things evolve, but I also recognize that stealing is wrong and um and, and i don't like capitulating to the notion that well you know people are going to steal and that's just the way it is and you just got to deal with it because that's that's accepting defeat that means none of us should ever lock our houses or our cars and and whatever else like just say that theft is a way of life Anyway, uh, the article goes on to say, and this is Dr. Wright again, he says, new business models have already been successful. One idea is to say, here's our album, it's free, you can download it, but pay us what you think it's worth. This model does surprisingly well, as some people pay a fair price, some pay nothing, whereas others pay a ridiculous price. Leaving the article, I, I would point out this has been done pretty well with video games. There's a thing called the Humble Indie Bundle, where a group of independent game manufacturers come together, and they release a, a package of games, and they tell people, look, we think this is worth worth about $10, you're free to donate whatever you want. As soon as you donate something, you will get a code to download these games. And a number of people obviously are going to donate $0.10 cents, uh, or $0.01 cent or whatever the smallest increment is. Some people are going to donate, most people are going to probably donate the $0.10, uh, and a number of other people are going to donate, you know, $20, $50, $100. Um, 
but it's a very interesting, and of course that reminds me of the Homer Simpson when he went with Lisa to the Natural History Museum because Mr. Bergstrom had recommended they go, and then when they get there, Homer Simpson's like, what does this mean by suggested donation, $5? And she says, the woman at the counter goes, well, people are welcome to leave whatever price they want, but uh, we, we encourage people to leave $5. And he goes, really? So what if I choose to donate zero? She's like, well, that's up to you, sir. And he goes, <laughs> and you think people are going to donate money just out of the goodness of their heart <laughs> lots of luck to you lady you're gonna need it <laughs> and of course lisa's mortified mr bergson comes up and drops ten dollars in or something uh yeah so um yeah this is now is this sustainable will it always work i don't know i'd be interested to see some sort of study about various kinds of media that have tried this approach some of them probably don't work very well others obviously do very well the world of goo is a really good uh, independent video game that uh, at one point, after they had sold it at, I think, $20 for a number of years, they said, okay, we're not selling very many copies right now, but people know it's a good game. Let's put it on sale using this model. People pay whatever they want, and they made a whole bunch of money. And some people say, okay, that only happens if the game has enough credibility. It's been around for a long time. People want to support it. But it also it does let people just sort of support it by giving a little bit of money, which is money they wouldn't have made otherwise. Uh, the article goes on to say another model, which was tried by the English rock group Radiohead, is to release the album for free once a fixed sum has been donated. In Radiohead's case, this was millions of pounds. And this is the Kickstarter notion, right? Where we say, I want to do this thing, or I have made this piece of work. I'm going to release it as soon as we have a certain amount of money. Um, you know, there's some Kickstarters that do very, very well. There's obviously others that don't do well at all. And this is a, you know, it, it's putting it all in the hands of the market. Um, but I, I think that by decentralizing artistry, we have some interesting possibilities. And as the article points out, this allows independent filmmakers, for instance, to make movies in a way that was inconceivable 15 years ago, because you had to get some sort of funders or you know and you sit down with one individual and that one individual gives you a thumbs up or a thumbs down like in gladiator where it's like your project lives or dies based on that individual's assessment of the market and their conception of what people want to see but in this case if you were to go to people and do a kickstarter or do like give us what you think it's worth this actually does let the marketplace decide it lets individual users rather than looking at consumers as one homogeneous wad of humanity instead it lets each individual person say yes i think this has value or no it does not and there's still going to be people who pirate and bootleg no doubt but but i think one of the benefits of doing something like a kickstarter or pay us what you think it's worth is um you, you then become more aware of how your money becomes an expression of the value. Whereas today, when I go to a movie, for instance, I just think, oh, I'm paying what the studio is charging, right? Like the, 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 the theater is charging $10, and a lot of that is to cover, you know, whatever. And they're going to try to get me to buy concessions and whatever it is. Um, and and I, I don't necessarily feel like I'm getting a lot of money to the artist, right? And, and most def said, I got 16 or 32 bars to rock up, but only 15% of profits ever see my pockets. Um, so it's it's it, it it's a, there's definitely a sense I think among a lot of consumers, and this I think fuels people's sense that it's okay to steal media. Is that well, the artist isn't going to get my money anyway. It's all going to studio executives and advertising moguls and the rest of it. Now that's not to say that it's okay to steal, but I do think that these new methods of paying for entertainment present some interesting opportunities for changing the dynamic between consumer and artiste. And blah, and blah, and blah, and blah. Let's talk education! Now, I know last week I went nuts with the education stuff. I'm going to try to keep it short this week. We're already at 40 minutes in. I'm trying to keep it short. I am trying to keep it short. I just got... People need to know about the can-eat-more... All right, real quick. Uh, Teach for America is proud to partner with J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan, can you believe it? Uh, I'm not going to go into Teach for America here. Maybe on another show. It's a complicated group of people. Um, I have friends who did Teach for America. I think they did an amazing thing by committing themselves to working in high needs high poverty areas, uh, places where kids need good teachers. And a lot of early teachers are full of energy like I was. And I was a great teacher when I started out. 
I'm not nearly as good as I am now, but that's a different matter. Um, okay, so J uh, Teacher America put a thing up on their website that was like, that was the headline. Teacher America is proud to partner with J.P. Morgan. Uh, joining Teacher America before pursuing a career in business will provide you with the management experience and skills that will help you to have a greater impact on the business world. Now, I saw this uh, press release from Teach for America because of Reddit, uh, and they had a whole thread about this, and there were a lot of people discussing it. And one person uh, on Reddit insisted that Teach for America was a good program and that J.P. Morgan was doing, trying to support the good work of Teach for America for good reasons. And they had this sort of sarcastic attitude, like, I'm going to be a crazy person, and it suggests that maybe there are some decent people at J.P. Morgan who just want to support a good program like Teach for America. And I responded by saying this. It's not a question of whether Teach for America or J.P. Morgan are part of any grand plot. I have friends who did TFA, and I think it's a program with many good intentions and many positive outcomes. The real question is how both organizations work as organizations and how they affect the systems of education, and in the case of J.P. Morgan, finance in the United States. And much of the research I've seen suggests that Teach for America, due to high turnover, inexperienced teachers, and other points made more eloquently by other people in this thread, sometimes has a deleterious effect on schools and students. What would help them more would likely be smaller class sizes, public works projects in the community, early childhood education, etc., etc. As for this new partnership, whether or not at J.P. Morgan, quoting the original Redditor, uh, some of the people there might actually want to in some way help people, is completely irrelevant. The fact is that J.P. Morgan is a predatory financial institution which has recently been caught engaged in massive fraud and criminal activity. For more details, see Charles Ferguson's text, Predator Nation. Any organization trying to support education should completely distance itself from such a company. Perhaps next they will partner with the Beltran Levia drug court cartel? Blah, blah, blah. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and like you, I try to find the best possible motives where I can and give people the benefit of the doubt, to a fault, usually. However, as the postcard says in my classroom, I'm not cynical, I've just been taking notes. Interna international corporations have a long history of spending a tiny bit of money on socially beneficial programs while simultaneously engaging in morally dubious, or in J.P. Morgan's case, clearly horrible activities that do far more damage than the benefits accrued from their philanthropic enterprises. So, J.P. Morgan gets stuffed. And Teach for America, you should stay the hell away from J.P. Morgan. Boo, J.P. Morgan, boo. Um, also in education news, this is really heartbreaking. Uh, many of you have probably already seen it. There's this really sad video. I actually haven't even seen the video because I think I wouldn't be able to take it for very long. Um, there's this woman named Karen Huffklein, and she was hired by this school district. Um, I don't remember where it is, but... Um, she was so she served as a bus monitor like basically she's supposed to be keeping kids on the bus safe and uh the Greece school district in Greece New York um she was being bullied relentlessly by these kids and they were just making fun of her and calling her fat and old and your family hates you and you should kill yourself and you'll never have anyone who loves you and i mean just all this horror and they just kept going and kept going and kept going and i mean you know there's one thing to say oh kids can be so cruel but this was just like vicious horrible, relentless, mean-spirited nastiness. Um, and it's so sad to see. And and unfortunately, you know, I see that on a somewhat regular basis. That's the schools where I teach. The school where I teach. I no longer teach at more than one school. i got to stop saying that. I trained myself when I did substitute teaching. I've been at lots of schools. Yeah, well, whatever. Um, and at the risk of being unpopular, because uh, in immediate, okay, so this got on the internet and everybody saw it and they were outraged, as they should be. I mean, it was clearly horrible and disgusting and pathetic and nasty and mean and wrong and the kids need to be punished and there's no question about it. Um, now, the I'll get to the silver lining in a second. Um, at the risk of being unpopular, I would argue that most people who do mean and nasty things do so because they have some sort of severe wound or deficit or pain or suffering in themselves and that while these individuals deserve to be punished there's no question about it and and they also um are probably acting out because of pain and suffering that they have gone through or they are going through um so i i think that you know this restorative justice that fania davis has spoken about and angela davis has also encouraged um you know fania davis said when she was in madison not long ago uh, harmed people harm people Healed people heal people. And, and I feel like that's probably what, what's going on here. These kids have probably been harmed a lot, and as a result, they want to harm other people. And 
um, if we want a better society, we have to heal people who have been harmed. And unfortunately, a lot of the discipline that takes place in schools and, and a lot of the ways that parents relate to children is not about healing people who have been harmed, but rather by f further harming people who have been harmed and punishment through, you know, spare the rod, you spoil the child and beat that kid down. And, and a lot of people on the internet were trying to do this too. They were like, I want to find out where those kids are. And actually 4chan went further than just, I want to find out. They, you know, in the true charming methodology of 4chan, they started posting addresses and people started leaving nasty messages to these kids and calling them up and all sorts of stupid vigilanteism. Um, but here's the silver lining, and this is beautiful, and this is what will make your heart sing and say, you know what, there is hope for our species. More than 5,700 donors from across the country have already donated over $110,000 to pay for Karen to take the vacation of a lifetime or maybe even retire early. And I think that's awesome. I donated a little money in order to say, like, hey, lady, look, these kids, and everybody wrote these beautiful messages saying these kids were wrong and how mean of them, but please don't lose heart. We love you and we appreciate the work you've done and, and, and uh, have a little money to you know, take a vacation or maybe retire early or whatever. Uh, I think that's great because, um, yeah. See, you can take something bad and turn it into something awesome, the way that Brock's dub did with the Rebecca Black song Friday. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to equate Rebecca Black's song to this act of you know, emotional torture and abuse from these kids on the bus. Obviously, Rebecca Black's singing is much worse than that, but whatever. Um, Bill Gates, there's an article on, where was this? Seattle Education 2010 WordPress.com. Now, that's a reliable news source, if ever there was one. Um, whatever, I'll post a link. You can go to it and find out out where the actual quotes from Bill Gates came from. Um, he, Bill Gates went to high school in a place called Lakeside, which is Seattle's most elite private school. The current tuition in 2012 is $28,000 a year, not including food, books, bus, laptop, and field trips. Um, and this article has all these quotes from um, blah, 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 Bill Gates, uh, who is... Um, we, you know who Bill Gates is. Well, I don't need to tell you Bill Gates. Let me tell you, in case you don't know who Bill Gates is, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Bill Gates is a big nerd. Um, yeah, he... So here's the thing. Bill Gates is a big supporter. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a big supporter of charter schools, privatized education, the business model of reform. Uh, he often... Well, I don't know that Bill Gates has said it a lot, but his wife has said it, and a number of advocates of business and model education reform say class size doesn't matter. All that matters is having a high-quality teacher in front of the classroom, and, and that leads us to all sorts of questions about how you determine who's high-quality and all the rest of it. Anyway, here's the interesting thing. Bill Gates' foundation is always saying class size doesn't matter. However, in... Bill Gates's high school lakeside, which he just loved. He thought it was magnificent and wonderful and awesome. It was a perfect intellectual environment. Blah, 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 blah. The student-teacher ratio is 9 to 1 at that particular institution. The average class size is 16. So here's that double standard. For any individual person, they will tell you they want their children to be in small classes. They want themselves to have opportunities to have individualized instruction and all that but when it comes to other people's kids oh class size doesn't matter the research says blah 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 and this is an example of where intelligence uh should be trumping ideology and don't get me wrong i'm not saying research doesn't matter but it's not the only thing that matters and clearly if you believe that your experience was powerfully affected by having small class sizes a doy as liz lemon would say uh that should be, you know, something you try to provide for other kids as well. But it takes money. And it's not as simple as just going, well, uh, testing. Uh, meanwhile, there was an article from Reuters that, oh, God, there's this new thing called the parent trigger, which sounds horrible and draconian, and in my opinion, is. Um, the headline was, Mayors Back Parents Seizing Control of Schools. Uh, here's the article. Hundreds of mayors from across the United States this weekend called for new laws letting parents seize control of low-performing public schools and fire the teachers, oust the administrators, or turn the schools over to private management. The U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting in Orlando, Florida on Saturday unanimously endorsed parent trigger laws aimed at bypassing elected school boards and giving parents at the worst public schools the opportunity to band together and force immediate change. End of article quotation. Now, as I've said in the past, I have a lot of sympathy and, and respect for parents who have their kids going to schools that clearly suck. And there are schools that suck. I'm not going to challenge that. No question at all. There are teachers who suck, of course. 
but but I believe that these parents are sort of being used as saps by a privatization movement, a a a business model reform movement that doesn't really care about these kids. And this idea that they're going to fire the teachers and get rid of the administrators and turn the schools over to private management. And don't, don't forget, last week I read you that thing from Diane Ravitch about what's going on in Louisiana with a lot of schools. Kids sit in cubicles all day. And here's the thing. Once you turn the schools over to private management, you will not have that accountability option of saying, we demand change now because the schools are going to be run by a private company and most private companies don't give two craps what consumers actually want. If you think private schools are going to care what parents think once they have control of the schools, think about when you've tried calling tech support. How care aside from the recorded message that says your call is important to us, how important do you really think your call is to these companies? And how's it going to look once they take over the school? You're going to call up and talk to a teacher. First of all, there won't be a teacher. There will be a DVD that's on constant playback loop from Khan Academy. It'll be great. I have a question. Shut up. Watch the video again. At the end of The Simpsons, when uh, Lisa, the end of The Simpsons, <laughs> in that one episode where Lisa's trying to understand about her genes and Dr. Hibbert plays her that video, the old real video, you know, the, the film real film strip, that's the word, the doy, uh, about DNA, and she's like, that didn't explain anything, and he goes, would you like to watch it again? That's what's going to happen, and when you call up trying to talk to your kid's teacher, you're going to get that same recording. Your call is important. Your child is very important to us. Please stay on the line, and an education uh, technician uh, representative will be right with you, and then you'll get somebody, probably outsourced to some other country, because they can afford to pay the workers half as much as they pay them here, and they'll go, what's your problem? And you'll go, my kid said the teacher spat on him and called him a name, and the person, the tech support rep, the education support rep will go, oh, I'm very sorry to hear that you're having trouble with our school, let me just pull up your case file, uh, what's your student's ID number? And you'll go, I just put it into the phone, why don't you have it there? And he'll go, I'm sorry, can I just get that number from you again? What is the point of me putting it into the phone? I've had some problems with tech support, as you can imagine. And I've also been a tech support person, so I know what it's like. And the people on the other end, I'm sorry to say it, people, nine times out of ten, because I don't want to badmouth all tech support people, but nine times out of ten, they really don't care about you. And they only say, we care about you. I mean, Ralph Waldo Emerson said once, the more he spoke of his honor, the faster we started counting our spoons. Which is to say, anytime someone starts bragging about how much they care about you or how important you are to them, you should run. Because chances are they don't give two craps about you. Um, that, and that's what's going to happen. So I'm sorry. I, I really don't think that this parent trigger thing is going to have a... Uh, it's it thing. I, I feel like we're on the brink of this really sad, nightmarish span of time in which schools get worse and worse and worse and we follow this chimerical uh, business model reform beast down into the void until we get to a point where every class is like 75 students and every class is just watching Khan Academy videos on a constant loop and we have these education tech support representatives when you call the school and 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 it's just it and parents suddenly realize like wait this sucks and 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 then the companies will go well the test scores keep going up and the parents are like my kid's an idiot he's drooling on himself he can't tie his shoes yeah but he scored well on the last test um <laughs> maybe he didn't well then we should fire the teacher uh yeah it's just, and, and we're gonna get to a point where eventually parents are gonna go. Oh, wow, we were wrong. And just like we're going to get to a point, I think, when we end up living in bubble cities and kids have to put on their gas masks to go scavenge for food in the streets, and people, and then people will look back and go, how did we let things get to this point? And everyone will go, well, we had no way of knowing. And then all the points that environmentalists have been making for the last 20 years, everyone will just suddenly ignore that in the same way that after the Iraq war, and I know we're coming up on an hour now, so much for having a shorter show. People need to know about the can't eat more. When the Iraq war went to crap and everybody was like, oh, we should never have gone in the first place, there were a bunch of us who had been out in the streets protesting who said, uh, excuse me, I do believe some of us said that back when, when this whole thing first started up, and everybody said we were un-American, lunatics, nut jobs, hippies, get a haircut, all the rest of it, and we were ignored and dismissed and laughed at, and then when everything went wrong, suddenly Fugiyama, everyone's going, oh, end of history, this guy knows what he's talking about, he's such a wise individual. What about the rest of us who are up in the streets, millions of us around the world saying, do not invade Iraq? And I, I, would, I would be only so mad if that were the end of it. But 
we're currently being ignored again when it comes to Iran. And we're, it's all starting up again. And everyone's like, we should deal with Iran. And we're all going, no, you remember Iraq? Remember how much that sucked? Remember how many American soldiers died? Remember how many Iraqi civilians died? Oh, wait, you don't remember that because you never knew that. Blah, blah, blah. All right, back to education news. Uh, this article was uh, from the Washington Post blog or something, and it said, Is Teacher Churn Undermining Real Education in D.C. Schools? Uh, teacher Churn is when you have lots of teacher turnover, a lot of people leaving, a lot of new people coming in. Um, so the article says, according to Tom Carroll, president of the National Commission on Teaching and America's Future, quote, teaching is no different than any other profession. Experience matters. What a notion. Uh, researchers have found that teachers reach peak effectiveness within about seven years of experience. Hey, that's where I'm at. I'm about ten years in. I'm at peak effectiveness. Yes! I guess that means it's all downhill from here. Dang it. No, I'm not going to get jaded. I'm not going to get lazy. I'm going to care about every kid. Man. My uh, mentor in grad school, uh, Professor Wright, he was awesome. Uh, he said, Robert Wright, he was so cool. He said, you're going to drive yourself crazy if you try to save every kid. Pick five. And I remember hearing that and thinking, you know what? No, I'm not going to pick five. I'm going to pick every one of them. I'm going to save every one of them. Now, I, 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 I understood, I think, even back then that you can only save kids who want to be saved. And unfortunately, the system of rote memorization and mind-crushing boredom that is the mainstay of so much education in the United States means that a lot of kids reach a point by the time they reach me in high school where they're just like, I don't care. I want to do whatever is easiest. Leave me alone and let me sleep. And it's really hard to break through that shell or that cocoon of distraction. Anyway, getting back to the article, uh, 80% of the teachers hired by D.C., Washington, D.C. this year will be gone before they get there. Carroll estimates that, quote, the district is burning about $12 million a year on teacher churn, $12 million that is being spent hiring and replacing teachers with no gain in school performance. So what's up with that? Um, also, Jason Gulliher sent me a thing about teachingwithportals.com. Uh, excuse me, teachwithportals.com. And it's a very interesting website. Uh, they're basically using the concepts in the video game Portal 2 uh, in order to uh, help kids learn about science and other things. Um, and they said, the website says, We've created Teach With Portals as a destination for this partnership, providing free content and game design tools, as well as an interactive community for exchanging lessons and experiences. And I think that's really cool. Now, it's kind of limited. There's only so much you can do really do with Portal. But I think Portal is a great example of how to get people interested in concepts of physics and other scientific things. And, I mean, if you study the story of Portal, I think you could do a really good job of showing people about character progression and storytelling and lots of other stuff. So, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about some killer robots. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! <laughs> I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Wanna kill all humans? Um, this, the Air Force has a secret robot space plane. Uh, <laughs> this is an article from PC Magazine, which is not a tinfoil hat publication. Uh, an unmanned United States Air Force space plane could be heading back to Earth this weekend after more than a year in orbit on a secret mission, according to news reports. The X-37B was launched 15 months ago after an earlier test flight that made it the only reusable space vehicle capable of achieving low Earth orbit outside of NASA's shuttles, which the space plane resembles in smaller form. The mission of OTV-2, the name of the X-37B, tentatively set to land on Saturday at California's Van Air Force Base has been shrouded in mystery and questioned by other nations, though the launch of the robotic space plane on March 5, 2011 was made public and generated a fair amount of attention at the time. The Air Force hasn't revealed much about what its new toy will be used for, but officials have left the door open for manned flights in the future. In the meantime, robots will pilot our spacecraft, our secret planes. Do not ask questions about... These are not the droid robot planes that you're looking for. Um... 
In other unusual news, more Asians are. This isn't really unusual news, but it's miscellaneous. That's where this section is where all the miscellaneous news comes in. Uh, more Asians are going to immigrate into the United States than Hispanics soon. Actually, it's already happening. According to new research from the Pew Research Center, people from Asian countries now make up the largest group of immigrants to the United States, surpassing what had previously been the group with the biggest influx, Hispanics. In 2010, there were 430,000 Asian immigrants versus 370,000, or 36% of all immigrants versus 31. Now, some people are going to probably immediately wonder if that includes illegal immigrants or not. Um, but I think it's interesting because racist people are in the United States are going to have to find new ways of being racist because they're not going to be able to go, damn, damn, Mexicans are taking all our jobs. Now they're going to have to go, oh, them damn Chinese are taking all our jobs or whatever it is. Uh, oh, racism. It's so funny. Also, uh, this week I saw an article about um, from Think Progress that said the headline is abortion rates dropped with access to contraception. Between 1990 and 2008, pregnancy and abortion rates for women in their 20s dropped dramatically, a new study revealed today. Pregnancy rates fell by 18%, while abortion rates dropped by a third. One of the biggest influencing factors in this decrease is the growing accessibility, use, and options for birth control. So, here's one of those long-sought-after common ground things that both pro-choice and pro-life uh, advocates can agree on. Let's have fewer abortions overall, because everybody, I think, would agree that that's probably a good thing. Now, we can talk about the fact that people who get abortions shouldn't be shamed about the fact that they decide to get an abortion, blah, 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 blah. but I think there's no question that ha giving women access to birth control and helping them learn how to use it and giving them options for it it's a good thing because it cuts down on the number of unplanned pregnancies in the first place, and that leads to less abortion. Yay, everyone wins. Oh, wait, Rick Santorum doesn't want it. There's a tiny, itty-bitty minority of zealots in the United States who say, no, women shouldn't have access to birth control, and Rush Limbaugh goes, this woman's a prostitute because she wants birth control, uh, and they're dictating policy for the whole country, which is ludicrous, so no, not good, boo. And also, Jason Gullaher also sent me uh, some information about research into video games, which is at the rwjf.org website, the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, <laughs> Wood and uh, you can go there and read all sorts of different research things that have been done with stuff about video games and read Grand Theft Childhood, which is a great book. And there was a How Stuff Works podcast recently about violence in video games. And they talked about some of the research. And there's lots of stuff to be said about research. But right now we got to talk about hip hop. Uh, I got an e-update from the desk of Governor Scott Walker. Oh, wait, sorry, I should never rap Scott Walker's name over dead prez. <laughs> That's like adding goat turds into your ice cream. <laughs> That's right, I called Scott Walker a goat turd. What of it? No, wait, I don't hate Scott Walker. I hate everything he does and says. See, it's hard to do that, but you got to do it, man. <sighs> All right, this week I want to talk to you about disposable heroes of hypocrisy. Uh, there's this guy named Michael Franti, who is really the, the point man of DHH. Um, Disposable Heroes only put out two albums ever. Uh, they're both in the late 90s. Uh, no, excuse me, early 90s. Mid-90s? I don't know. I can look up the years, but I'm too lazy. I'm a busy man. I don't have time for that. Um, it's uh, Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury is their first album. And then they did an album with William S. Burroughs called Spare Ass Annie and Other Tales, uh, which was really odd because it was all about how... Um, yeah, 1992 was their first album, and then the Spare Ass Annie album came out, I think, a year later, two years later. Um, it was weird, because they had William S. Burroughs reading some of his stories, and then Disposable Heroes were doing you know, drum beats and samples and stuff in the background. Um, yeah, and that's the only music they ever created, but it's a shame, because it's awesome music. The William S. Burroughs album is okay, um, but Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury, I would put it probably top 20 greatest hip-hop albums of all time because it's so diverse musically and it's so interesting. They did a cover of California Uber Alice, which was a Dead Kennedy song. And uh, some of you may not have heard um, Greg Proops uh, talking about the difference between punk music and uh, Tom Sawyer by Rush. And so at the end of the show, since it won't be long enough already, I'll play you that clip. Um, so, uh, yeah, Tom Sawyer. Uh, writing myself a note and remember to play that later. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so dis- disposable here's a popsy. Michael Franti was in a group called the Beat Nigs once upon a time. They put out one album, self-titled debut album, and then for whatever reason that group broke up or transitioned into Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. And he worked with this guy named Ron Otsay, and they put out this album, and it's a beautiful mix of hip-hop and industrial, and Mark Pistol from Consolidated was working on it, and Jack Dangers from uh, Mibi Manifesto uh, did some production and editing work. And it's just a, it's a wonderful album. I listen to it on a regular basis. I love playing parts of it to my students. They did a song called Television, Television The Drug of the Nation, which is a magnificent song. And as I said last week, or maybe it was the week before, uh, Michael Franti, after that album, went off in a sort of different direction with a group called Spearhead, uh, and 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 now the music that he puts out is is kind of folky. Uh, he has a song called Hello Hello, which is a good song actually. I have it on my iPod Mega Mix for the summertime, uh, and it's all he has a line in it that said, "This is all uh, no drum machines. This is all organic," as if to say, you know, I'm turning my back on that drum machine stuff, the industrial stuff. I'm not into it anymore, and I want him. He said that he wants to make music that's more, you know, uh, soul affirming and you know less based on anger and frustration, which I can understand that, but. You you know what? Some of us are angry and frustrated by the world, and we need some music that can allow us to vent that, and Disposable Heroes was great for that. So here's a little bit from their song Financial Leprosy, which is on their first album, uh, Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury, and I think it's a good taste of what makes Disposable Heroes how did they ever manufacture consent? A meal in every trash can Myth of the happy hobo COINTELPRO The Cosby Show Why did they cut the Pell Grant So they can build cells Ten years in prison but no tenure at the university Is this ethnic diversity? Or is it public policy? The ones who need education the most are not getting it yeah, uh, and of course that sample I picked in part because it mentions Manufacturing Consent, which is a book by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, and there's a documentary film called Manufacturing Consent, which you must see right away. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, stop repenting because the end of this near, but don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear, pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. This week's quote comes from Bertrand Russell, and I know we had a quote from him not long ago, but I tried to mix it up and have different ty- different people from different walks of life but I found this quote recently, and I just had to share it. Uh, in 1932, Bertrand, and I told you about Bertrand Russell on the page. He was a mathematician, logician, and uh, peace activist, and he was a very interesting guy. Uh, he, in 1932, he wrote a piece called, uh, an essay called In Praise of Idleness, and this selection is just so beautiful. I love it. The idea that the poor should have leisure has always been shocking to the rich. In England in the early 19th century, 15 hours was the ordinary day's work for a man. Children sometimes did as much, and very commonly did 12 hours a day. When meddlesome busybodies suggested that perhaps these hours were rather long, they were told that work kept adults from drink and children from mischief. When I was a child, shortly after urban working men had acquired the vote, certain public holidays were established by law to the great indignation of the upper classes. I remember hearing an old duchess say, What do the poor want with holidays? They ought to work. People nowadays are less frank, but the sentiment persists and is the source of much of our economic confusion. Isn't that awesome? And elsewhere in the essay, he says something about the rich are always telling the poor about the dignity of work and how much dignity it brings, while never doing a whole lot to bring that same sort of dignity upon themselves, and so they live in perpetual indignity. Which I just think, he's he's so good, that acerbic, it's hard to believe that he's a Brit, isn't it? All right, that's it, people. End of show. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've done. Shout-outs this week to Jason Gallagher for the portals thing and the Duchess for corrections and affirming that I explained the concept of mathematical mean correctly on the last show, or maybe it was median. I don't remember. Anyway, thanks to people who wrote in and sent me things. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize that there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out. You know what? I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles you think I might want to look at. ESP at FBESP.org is my website. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. 
And, so powerful. And here's the thing from Greg Proops about punk music versus Rush. Punk rock goes like this. That's how punk rock goes. Rush goes like this. I don't know what the fuck. I've never listened to a Rush song the whole way through.